Thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. The ground is always shifting in the tech world. There's a constant barrage of new programs, platforms, competitors, and regulations that make running a tech company a wild ride. So you need to find a fast way to find the people with the skills to keep up. There's no better way than ZipRecruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Not your job, the job you're hiring for. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here in New York City. It's very warm here, so I hope you're cool wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this, as you are, please tell someone else. Thank you. I'm here with Judd Legum. Did I get it right? That's right. Woohoo! Founder, editor-in-chief of Think Progress, now has his new thing called... Popular Information. Which is a... Newsletter. Judd, you're like you're like the, the great uh, Venn diagram of, of all the uh, Recode Media guests. So you're a, a guy who's building his own business via newsletter. Mm-hmm. Eventually subscription. So that's, yeah. that's that's one half of all our guests, trying to figure out how to get someone to pay for their information. And you are someone who rose to prominence really the last few years because of the Trump administration and the renewed interest in, uh, what do we call it politics or national nightmare or both? Yeah, I'd say I basically have been doing the same thing for most of my career, but I, I think it's a buyer's market or a, a seller's market for progressive media, you know, in the last couple of years. Let's, bro- let's broaden out. People who are interested in, in Trump. Yes. And, yes. and that show that he's brought to Washington. Very much. Very, very much so. Very much so. Uh, so you, you literally are someone who I didn't know of until the last few years, mm-hmm. showed up in my Twitter feed a lot look like some of the other guys who are tweeting a lot about politics and I had to sort of take some time after you pitched me and said, I'm doing my own newsletter. I want to come talk to you about it. I said, oh, great. And then I had to make sure that I understood who you were. I was confusing you for a minute with uh, Kyle Griffin. Yes. From NBC. Yes. White guy I could with a beard. See, I could see from You're the Twitter avatars. Yes. Yeah. I think he has a mustache and I have a beard. So All right. There's some distinction there. You white guys, you all yeah. look the same. Fill in the backstory for us for, before we get to what you're selling now. You, how did you get to where you are now? You started off because you didn't grow up trying to be a journalist, right? You, you went to law no, school. No, not really at all. I, I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I did go to law school. Uh, I was thinking about going on a campaign. I didn't know anyone at the time. I would set off a bunch of letters. No one would hire me. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to law school. So I went to law school, hooked up with uh, John Podesta, who was a uh, professor there at the time. When I graduated, he was starting Center for American Progress, 2003. Um, and, and if you're not in Washington, explain what that is. It's a progressive think tank. It was designed to be kind of a counterbalance to the Heritage Foundation, which is the big conservative think tank still is, and just moved over there without any kind of portfolio or, or job description. I love how people go to law school and then don't become lawyers. I don't think— there's a lot of other professional graduate schools where you spend time. You spend years and, and tens yeah. of thousands of dollars and then decide, ah, I don't want to do that. The experience in law school pretty much convinced me of that, <laughs> that this is not how I wanted to spend my time. Uh, yeah, so then I went over to uh, Center for American Progress. I got involved actually initially in a newsletter there. Uh, that's how we started for the first couple of years. So I did have some experience doing that. And then around 2005, got really interested in sort of the early blogosphere and started reading all those folks and said, hey, I want to start a a blog. So who are you reading in 2005? What's around then? That was, some of the people are still around, Josh Marshall, uh, but it was really just his blog, Mm -hmm. not not a media 
entity, uh, Marcos, the Daily Coast. Um, Slash SB Nation, so, we're talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Kevin Drum, who's now at uh, at Mother Jones. And then there were a, ver- a variety of folks who sort of faded into the into the woodwork. This is after the first web boom, but then when blogging software allows smart people to say, I have something to say in a couple hundred words or about this New York Times article. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a, there's a political ecosystem. There's an ecosystem of, of blog, of particular political bloggers that built up around then. Yeah. It's, it's weird to say because blogs are so, they're almost passe now, yeah. but I found it incredibly exciting because it used to be that there was this sort of walled garden. You had to be New York Times, ABC, Washington Post. Those are the people who got to set the terms of the discussion and this idea that anybody could just put their ideas out there and you could see it have an impact and and start to change people's perceptions and there was a lot of engagement around it. you were sort of talking to each other and linking to each other. It was an ecosystem. Ecosystem slash club. Yeah. And it was – it was – I found it really um, exciting and just wanted to be a part of it uh, in some way. And so that that becomes— That became Think Progress. That was your blog funded by John Podesta's group. Yeah. It wasn't quite just my blog. We started off with three or four people, uh, and the idea was we were going to take some of the techniques that we were developing you know, in the newsletter. We would do other things, research. I think my, my title at the time was research director. Uh, and just try to professionalize the blog content in a way a little more than just kind of opinion, but, you know, we're going to dive into Nexus and dig up old quotes Mm -hmm. and, you know, start putting video clips on the internet and things like that. Was there a breakout success for you guys? Was there a a post or a series of stories that that helped land you guys on the map? Yeah, I mean, there were were a few. I remember that there was Jack Abramoff, uh, who was the lob? If, if you don't recall, for, for younger listeners, it was this corrupt lobbyist connected with the Bush administration. He was having this strange. It's a great in- documentary on him, right? Yeah. Who made yeah. that? I don't know. We can Google it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but he was having this strange email conversation with an editor at the Washingtonian Magazine, and all of a sudden, that person started forwarded them to one of the writers, actually Amanda Turkle, who's now the Washington Bureau Chief at uh, Huffington Post, just started forwarding them these emails. And we were making like national news based on the contents of these emails because Jack Abramoff was saying, you know, the White House was saying, oh, he was really never here. And then Jack Abramoff was telling his friend, oh, I was there six times on this date and that date and we were on CNN and things like that. So I think that was that was one of the ones that uh, that definitely – uh, stuck out. We had an interview on the street with the Koch brothers, one t- or one of the Koch brothers, one time, and, who, and they very seldom do any interviews. That was a big one for us. So, and this is where you could really stand out with with a bit of enterprise and a little bit of not cutting corners, but just sort of dispensing with some of the sort of traditional trappings of journalism and sort of the sort of stentorian voice, and and you could you could break into the national conversation. Definitely. Definitely. We, I mean, we were, we were just a couple of people, you know, sitting around our desks, uh, but I think there was also just a lot of low-hanging fruit in those days because there wasn't this huge built-out infrastructure. I mean, this was even actually before the Huffington Post existed, right. before Twitter, before Facebook. So when the, it's when the Times and the Journal and those guys were putting their stuff online but once a day, so they really weren't online. You could go see yesterday's news today. 
That, yes, I think there was definitely a big gap between you know nine a.m. and when when they would start posting the next day's stories yeah. uh, on the internet. And you know, we we stepped in and, and took advantage of that. And also, like a, a lot of the cable news stuff, just in the early days. I mean, this is just the complete kind of fodder of the internet now. But at the time, there weren't a lot of people doing it. And just oh, this congressman was on. CNN or MSNBC and said X newsworthy thing. Right. That helped us really build up a lot of – Again, it, it is hard to imagine, but 2005, 2006, yeah. there wasn't a place to go see that stuff immediately yeah. and discuss that and have it distributed. Yeah. It was really just us and – they're still around too. Crooks and liars were, were a couple of the early folks who just got the technology to quickly grab video uh, from – from TV and so you're, you're building this up. You're out of law school. What what is your ambition? Do you think I want to do this to work my way into the New York Times? Do I want to go into politics for real? What's your ambition at the time? I don't know if I had a real defined plan. I was really enjoying it. I loved doing it, and I was very I was hyper focused on that just 24 hours a day. Yeah. I think like a lot of people uh, in media. Eventually, I did go and leave. And was the research director for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008. Uh, I wasn't really seeking that out, so again, it wasn't it wasn't part of my master plan. I think they had become familiar with me because there was an ABC documentary about uh, 9/11 that was very controversial, and we did a lot of reporting and digging into that documentary, and I, I think they. They saw that we had some research capabilities. Uh-huh. What is the role of a research director in a, in a presidential campaign? A lot. There's a lot of stuff to do. Uh, principally, you're responsible for all the opposition research. So you look at all the candidates in in 2008. This was principally Obama and Edwards were where we put most of our resources. Had a team of about 20 people. So that's people scouring the internet, that people doing the equivalent of journalism slash private detective work. Yeah, you work a lot with journalists. Uh, because you know, you'll put together a whole dossier about a, st- a particular story, and then you'll go, you'll work with the press people and, and basically shop it to. You know, I have New York this Times. story about so and so. I want you to write it. I don't want to come. I don't want to put it out myself. That's right. What are, What are the limits? What were the sort of the gu- the guardrails for you? Right, because this is this is the kind of work where everyone does it. And then there's a there's li- some people will put limits on what they'll do and won't do. Yeah, I I tried to just stay with my own uh, ethical <laughs> guidelines of what's right and what's wrong. I don't think there's really necessarily anyone telling you or giving you a guidebook of of how to do it. Is there is there a point where you go, well, this is a story that I wouldn't want to shop. I find it distasteful, but I want the candidate or the people working with the candidate to make that decision. I'm going to offer it up to them. Um. I can't recall something like that. I definitely think there were a lot of things that I was aware of that I kind of decided I wasn't getting into. I think principally the John Edwards story that was talked about 
a lot. Spell that out for people that don't know the, 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 the story about memory. John Edwards having an affair. Which um, he did. Which he did. It turned out to be true. I didn't know that at the time, but that was widely discussed. And there is this ongoing conversation between campaign operatives, which is what I was at the time, and journalists. And they're exchanging information. And a lot of this is not – it's not anything you could publish or even want to publish, but it's just what have you heard? What have you heard? And you're just going back and forth. Um, and that was widely talked about. In fact, I can remember a conversation right before the National Enquirer. We had gotten word that the National Enquirer story, who broke the story, was coming out. And I had a conversation with my boss at the time, Howard Wolfson, and we had all heard about this story. We were like, well, this story is going to come out tomorrow and John Edwards is going to drop out of the race. So what does that mean for us? You know, where do we devote our resources? Because we thought it was true and this story was coming out. And then it came out and everyone – pretty much ignored it. It was it was kind of shocking. But um, that kind of stuff does does come up. Did you have any conversations with the, the Clinton campaign the last go-around? Um, I, I, you know, John Podesta is how I got started yeah. in in politics. So I would talk, I would talk to him um, just because we've developed a friendship over the years, but I never thought about going to that campaign. What did you think about the, just fast forwarding to, yeah. to the last election uh, and, and the aftermath, uh, the the dossier that BuzzFeed eventually published that after the fact everyone said, oh, well, we all knew about that. We all had copies of it. We decided not to publish it. Had you heard about the, this is the, the Russia dossier, I hadn't, the P tape? I, I hadn't heard about that that dossier. You know, that goes beyond what you know, the kind of research team that I built out Above w- your would, pay do, grade. would do. You know, we're not going to Russia uh-huh. and talking to sources or really going really going anywhere, <laughs> going to any foreign country and talking to, talking to sources. We're mostly looking at public information or information that could be public. You know, we're looking at can we get this old debate tape and find something right. that would be interesting. I, I was curious because it, yeah. it, it was kind of clear – during the campaign, especially during the debate, that Clinton either knew stuff or thought she knew stuff about Trump, but wasn't was hoping someone else came out and said it, or she'd allude to it. There's the famous uh, your puppet mm-hmm. exchange uh, on stage where she got closest to it. Could you sort of, as as someone who'd been in that world, been a research director, going, "Oh, I know what she wants to do, but she won't do it," or she doesn't doesn't feel comfortable putting it in her own mouth? Yeah, I definitely think there's there's always the decision of who is going to be the person who came comes out with it? And and very seldom do you want that to be a candidate unless it really is in the center of the At least their under message. the old rules, right? Right. Now, I mean, Donald, now, Trump, now, now Donald, Donald Trump, Trump just says it or he cites the National Enquirer or both. Right. You know, at the time in t- 2008, it was Bill Clinton doing a lot of it, which turned out to be not a good move <laughs> because when he would do it, it wouldn't go over well. But that's what happened a lot of the time in 2008. I think Harry Reid tried to take that role in 2016. You know, he released some letters, talked about what he knew, or at least alluded. Didn't get into a so lot d- of detail. Right, doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a press outlet. Can be a proxy, someone else in government. Yeah, yeah, and I think Harry Reid was a big supporter of Hillary Clinton, right. and so I think he he felt like that information should be out. Maybe because he supported Hillary Clinton, or maybe just he thought people should know about it. But it didn't really, you know. If you look at the 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 amount of coverage of Hillary's emails versus the stuff Harry Reid yeah. was talking about in Russia, it was a blip. 
What do you? Th- how do you think the role? And it's not your job, but how do you think the role of a research director is going to be different for the next campaign? Given sort of the world we're in with Twitter and blogs and truth slash non truth, um, do, do you think you are going to spend? Do you think someone like you will spend as much time? You know, figuring out if someone actually went to the college they said they said they went to. If if we were in a world where where Donald Trump has sort of removed shame from the vocabulary, at least for for himself as a as a candidate, yeah. I think it's much less important now with yeah. Trump, to be honest. Because if you think about somebody like Barack Obama, very difficult from a research perspective. You're trying to kind of pierce that armor a little bit. And he had developed over his career, you know, he'd written a book about him, did some drugs or whatever. But for the most part, I mean, he had this incredible life story, was very careful about what he did, what he said. It took a lot of work to find something that could possibly be damaging to him. Donald Trump tweets it out. I mean, he right. what, what could you possibly find about Donald Trump? I mean, maybe Robert Mueller will find something, but it seems very difficult as a researcher on a campaign and to find you, something. Right. So do you think that that is, that is specific to Trump or do you think that we've now changed the sort of tenor and sort of what counts as, as mudslinging or an embarrassing fact to arise? It'll be interesting in to see what happens post-Trump uh, if, if this has created some sort of new standard or if we've gone back. I think a lot of Democratic candidates still today operate kind of under the old rules. Uh, You you saw even something, and and I I actually thought this was the right thing for him to do, but even someone like Al Franken, who was accused and, and admitted to some inappropriate conduct, but compared to what Trump's accused to, yeah. it was not much. Um, and he resigned. So I, I do think that there is kind of a parallel universe today where these rules do seem to apply. So I think it's an open question of is now the standard just I'm a bit better than Trump and if so, yeah. no problem? Or or do we go back to where we kind of hold our – it used to be that we thought we want to hold politicians to a higher standard than a typical person. Yeah, I, it is hard to imagine – that that barn door is just not going to stay open? Uh, Possibly, but I do think that Trump is really effective in creating his own rules and his own reality, and that's really where his political skills lie. And I don't know if other people are really capable of doing that. I mean, can you imagine another president who, you know, there was his lawyer stood up in a courtroom a few days yeah. ago and said, I committed two felonies with Donald Trump. Right. And he said it explicitly. And the entire Republican Party just fell right into yeah, line and Trump him. to defend himself says, yeah, I knew about the payments that I made to the women to hush them up. Like, it's crazy. Um, but here we are. It's it's almost a magical a magical hold. So I it could happen, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm amazed by what he's able to do. Let's all ponder that for a second while we take a break. Back in a minute with Judd Luggum. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. Simply Safe home security is ready for anything that gets thrown at it. If the storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. If they destroy your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. Sure, maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst case scenario. But wouldn't you like to be ready? That's what makes Simply Safe's home security system so great. It is always ready. 
Simply Safe could cost an arm and a leg, but it does not. Instead, they just charge you what's fair. You get 24-7 professional security monitoring for just $14.99 a month. No contracts, no hidden fees. You can go check it out at simplysafe.com slash media today. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash media to protect your home and family today. simplysafe.com slash media. Hello, this is Peter Kafka, and I want to tell you about Vox's daily news podcast. It's called Today Explained, and it's excellent. This is a show that really cares about diversity. You're going to hear all kinds of great stories, not just about what's going on in Trump land. There's a great, smart episode about why crazy rich Asians, that's the movie, is such a big deal. Or you can go listen to a great interview with controversial psychologist Jordan Peterson. Bring some popcorn for that one. Today Explained is a new show that sounds human. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You might even sing along when they write songs about the news. That is a real thing they do. You can subscribe to Today Explained on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. I knew we'd talk about Trump eventually. Still yeah. here with Judd. Um, so you were you built up Think Progress back to back to the mm-hmm. near yeah. recent past. It's a big organization now, right? How many folks work there? There's about forty right now. Forty right now, ten million uniques. It's it's a big web yeah. property, big digital publisher. Yeah, it it varies from month to month. I'd say six to ten. And is it is it supported through ads or or entirely from Center for American Progress? Both. It's it's got a mix. It has ads that brings in a good chunk. Uh, we started a membership program last November, as as most everyone does. Uh, I guess including BuzzFeed. I just read yeah. <laughs> the other day. Um, so that that's been really successful. We have about. I think about 4,000 monthly recurring members, which is a big deal for us. And and then also a subsidy from the larger organization. So, so you, combined, that meets the budget. And you were editor-in-chief, yes. built the thing up. Um, and again, someone who, who just is one of a cast, I think of as a cast of characters that I didn't know about and then sort of showed up in my Twitter feed over the last couple of years. Um, you know, these you you you'd create these acerbic viral tweets. Um, again, I, I knew I knew you vaguely. I knew what the tweets were. It was hard for me to think. What I didn't wasn't entirely sure what Think Progress was. Yeah. Um, what was that like to sort of rise in prominence along with the Trump era? I think it was initially when he got elected. It was interesting to me because. I had gone through the Bush years uh, and and the Obama years, basically looking at politics in a in a from a similar kind of lens, and then it's almost like you saw a whole world around you yeah. kind of waking up to this. I mean, a lot of what we write about in Think Progress has been from the very beginning, the far right. I remember in in 2011, I assigned this reporter, and she kind of hated me for it, to go through the Drudge Report and look at every single time in the last year or two years that he had linked to Alex Jones. Because we want to write about how Drudge, who's very influential with the right, is is linked into Alex Jones. So it's something that we had been following for a long time, and I think Trump was kind of the culmination of that. I think the other part of it was on Twitter— with a smaller following before Trump, I very consistently from 2015 was saying, do not underestimate him. <laughs> this person has this person has a chance. And I think it's because 
I'd really been tracking the rise of this faction of the Republican Party for a long time. So you had the insight into uh, the political system that was creating Trump, the media ecosystem that was creating Trump, and you were able to see that early. But you personally, right, be, just became a much higher profile person. You've yeah. got, what, 300,000-ish Twitter followers now? Yeah, not quite. But I think maybe 285. Something maybe like 285. Yeah. You, you check it daily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but prior to Trump, I'm assuming nothing close to that, right? No, I think I was I was definitely under a hundred thousand. And 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 again, this is you you were tweeting as Judd, editor in chief of yeah. Think Progress, but it wasn't the Think Progress of his account; it was your account. So, what was it like to to for you your personal profile to get raised? Um, lots of people have benefited, at least in terms of fame. Uh, I don't know, if, in some cases, monetarily from from Trump's rise, and I think you're in that group. Yeah, I don't know if I've. I'm hoping this newsletter will be successful, yeah. and then maybe I can say that I that I've benefited monetarily from it. Um, but I think it's just more people listening to you. You can you can get in touch with a lot of people. You hear from a lot of people. Uh, I started getting some good tips for stories and ideas. So you get a flywheel effect. You become yeah. more famous. People know who you are. They send you stuff. They pay attention to you. Yeah, so that was great. I got a, I got a couple of great tips, uh, one about the Kuwaiti embassy um, moving their party to the uh, Trump Hotel after the election, which was a big story for, for me and for Think Progress. Uh, and I, I don't know if I would have gotten that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, in fact, I know the person who, who was my, my source – found me through Twitter. Um, so that was so that was great and, and different. And I think, yeah. So you build all that up. You build your personal profile. You build the, the, the organization. You build this news organization along with it. And now you leave. Yeah. Yeah, now I left. Um, I think that really it's it's less related to Trump specifically and more to the maturation of the organization overall. I didn't really start – I mean we, we st- talked about this. I started out this because I really got interested in blogs. I, I like the the work, the, the topic, the subjects. I like thinking about it. And when you have a newsroom that's 40 people, it's great because you can do so much stuff. But I found more and more of my time was not spent doing substantive work but managing a 40-person organization, which as it turns out, uh, having never done it before, is a lot of work. And so – I think I just got a little burned out on the management side. Not because I didn't like. I mean, I I hired all the people. Mm-hmm. I, I like I like them. I think I got a lot of got a lot out of doing that kind of work. But I think just kind of sitting back and reflecting, I was like, I really just want to write more. I want to do more. So I understand stuff. the impulse of saying I want to write. Yeah, and I want to manage. Maybe I'm not the best manager. Maybe I've I've managed up to my capacity. However, yeah. it worked out. Um, but you've built up a big platform. It seems like if you want to write, you could write for that platform. I could, but I think that I'm so tightly connected to Think Progress. And in a large part up until this point, it kind of is a, somewhat of a reflection of what I've wanted to do with it that I wasn't confident that I could have the focus that I thought I needed to do this right. That if I was still there – even if they would say, okay, well, you're not doing that job. You're doing another job. We're going to bring some – I would get pulled back in. So you want a clean break. Yeah. I I think that it's important. One of the things that's always been important to me, whether at Think Progress or elsewhere, is, is focus. If you're going to do something, you have to do it right, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, at Think Progress, we've never done a podcast because I was never – 
we kind of piloted some, but I was never confident we could do a good one. Yeah, it takes um, real work to do something yeah. like that. <laughs> so, I'm winking right now. So that was, I think that was really the the motivation behind it. So now, present tense, you've split from the company that you, you helped build. Um, you're creating a new product, which is a it exists now. It's in my it's in my inbox right yeah. now. Popular information. Popular information. Free, right now. No free for now. It. Presumably, that's gonna something's gonna change there. Yeah, I started about a month ago. Uh, I'm gonna run it this way for another month, and hopefully demonstrate the value to the people who are reading it. And then, sometime later in September, maybe early October. I haven't figured out the exact date. I'm going to switch to kind of a hybrid model where you're going to be able to continue to stay on the free list. You'll get one or two a week. But if you want the full four times a week or sometimes I've even been doing five times a week, uh, you're going to have to pay a, a monthly fee. So the one in my inbox this morning says uh, it's, it's a riff on uh, Trump's rant about Twitter and Google. Um, which may or may not be news when you listen to this in a couple of days, uh, and then a couple of smaller stories. Kind of reminds me a little bit of, of the Ben Thompson model, right? Mm-hmm. One largish essay, and then a couple of smaller items. It's not a coincidence, right? Yeah, Every, I, I, everyone wants to be Ben Thompson. I definitely was inspired by that. I hooked up with this tech company Substack that I pretty much has created their company inspired by the Ben Thompson model. I do. This is this is. I think we're going to have these guys on actually in the near future. So these, these guys help you build a newsletter, right? They, everything but the actual writing. They help you distribute it. They help you put a paywall there if you want to do that. Yeah, they have all the technology set up. The CMS. You type it in there. You press publish. You can manage your lists and things and things like that. So they make it really easy, which is important. Which was important for me because I knew I was doing it myself, and I didn't want to spend ten hours a week, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with integrating MailChimp into WordPress or whatever you'd have to do. So, yeah, so it's definitely inspired by that. And I did notice, of course, when I was thinking about this, signed up for basically every single political newsletter. And I did notice that most of them are sort of the, here's what happened today in very short kind of snippets. Right. There's the Axios model, the Politico playbook model, a lot of transactional. This thing happened. Here's a one sentence worth of insight. Right. So I wanted to I wanted to kind of zag away from that and say I am going to be a little bit of your guide through this find something that's I think is really important and dive into it a little almost bit almost like a blog post I think it has a lot of similarities yeah. to that um, and and it is it does reflect the kind of writing that I like to do I think fundamentally you know I, I've I've worn a lot of hats I've been a, a political operative I've I've reported out stories. I'm going to continue to do reporting on the newsletter too, but I think of myself at core as a researcher, and I think that's what the product represents is that I'm going to take the topic and then I'm going to research it and then distill it for you. We'll take one more break. Back in a minute with Judd Legum. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. As you might know, Recode and other Vox Media websites run on the publishing platform called Chorus. It helped Recode reach the audiences we wanted, where we wanted. And it lets publishers do what they do best, focus on creating content. And now Chorus is open for business. We're bringing other premium publishers onto the platform. Chorus solves the headaches of modern digital publishers. 
It offers the best in-class suite of publishing tools for modern multimedia storytelling, smart, data-informed, multi-platform content distribution, and integrated premium advertising solutions. Chorus has been at the forefront of optimizing and working as beta partners with platforms like Google AMP and Apple News. Now you can come partners with us through Chorus. They've opened up the business to publishers and are ready to license. Find out more about licensing with Chorus at voxmedia.com slash getchorus. That's voxmedia.com slash getchorus. And we're back with Judd. So when I signed up prior to talking to you, uh, your, your, your landing page has a, a sort of mini rant about the, the power and uh, concentrated power that Twitter and particularly Facebook have in distributing news and why it's important to get products like your newsletter that aren't dependent on them. Um, seems a little ironic, though, since sort of your entire sort of fame slash clout comes in, in large part from Twitter. Yes, but I think that that's a big problem, right? I don't want – I don't think that my relationships with readers should be dependent on Twitter's algorithm. Uh, Twitter has been – is pretty good. Actually, all the changes that they've made to their algorithm – have thus far benefited people. If you follow someone, you pretty much get to see what they publish. They, yeah. they monkey with it a little bit. But basically, if, if I'm following you, I'm going to see everything that you put out at some point. That's true. And even more so, they've kind of gotten the things of if you publish things that people like to retweet or like, it goes to even more people. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what really, I think in addition to Trump, the changes in the Twitter algorithm helped me because I always got a good amount of retweets, but now they kind of supercharge those tweets. Um but I think I saw the opposite on Facebook. You know, we built up and think progress 1.7 million people. And now, you know, they might give you access to 0.2% of that mm-hmm. or, or, or less. Um, with email, you know, I'm getting 40, 50% of the people on my list on a daily basis opening it up. I think that's, to me, that seems like a better deal for me and and the readers. So I'm going to use Twitter or Facebook, whatever else I can use to, to promote this as, That's long your as, they'll, as long as they'll let me. Yeah. But I, I want to have something that belongs to me. Yeah. It seems like you're still going to be very dependent on Twitter slash Facebook slash whatever that the next platform is, if there is one, uh, to find those readers, right, and convert them into subscribers and maybe paying subscribers. Yes, I think I think so. Although there's other things I've learned in the month or so I've had this going of ways to get people into your newsletter. One of the things I think that's really effective is just finding another newsletter you like and negotiating kind of a swap of, hey, you know, uh, I like your newsletter. I'll, I'll plug it. Maybe you could plug mine. I think that's been effective too. So Again, back to the old days of blogging. Yeah. So so what, what do you think the, the value proposition that you've got to – make to a reader who has, again, probably very interested in politics, is presumably consuming a lot on Twitter, presumably is paying for a New York Times or some other subscription. Now you, on top of that, want to charge them how much? Have you put put a price on this yet? Yeah, I think 99% sure it's going to be Five dollars a month. Five bucks a month. So what, what is a what is the what is the pitch to them to say? In addition to the amount of time and money you're spending on other outlets, give me five bucks and this many minutes of your week. I think I'm going to save you time because I think there's a lot of people who are during the day working in in real jobs and not in politics, and that I'm they don't also, have executive time. Until yeah, <laughs> not executive time, and I'm also going to give you a far more in-depth 
uh, view of what's going on, and I think I can give you an independent view of what's going on. For instance, I had a newsletter um, that talked about in depth uh, wage stagnation, how the tax cuts have been going to very large corporations, the historical trends of that. I think it might be difficult for a newsletter like Axios that's sponsored by you know, J.P. Morgan or in Bank of America pretty much on a daily basis. You don't see that kind of analysis. Now, it might be one of those things that they found each other. They, they might not have been planning to do that analysis no matter what. But I do think that having no ads, having no outside, not not being source and access driven allows you to give people exactly what you think is the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the pitch for someone like Ben Thompson at Stretchery is, you know, presumably as an affluent audience, maybe you're an investor, um, whatever, he's charging, I guess, 10 bucks a month. Um, you find one article a year that, that gives you deep insight into something or, or the confidence to invest in something and that pays off. Um, how do you think about that for your audience, which presumably isn't going to benefit directly, at least financially, from subscribing? Yes, this is not designed to give you a give you a lead on a good stock yeah. to purchase or something like that. I think it's just the value of democracy that we tried. I think 2016 was a vivid example of where you say, "Okay, I'm going to rely exclusively on Twitter, Facebook, and, and you know maybe my subscriptions to a national and local newspaper to get my information." And there you got. Lots about Hillary Clinton's emails mm -hmm. and less about like a lot of other topics that maybe you should have had more in-depth information. So it's really the value of our uh, – of democracy and I do believe that something Trump understands, something the right understands, the value of the hyper-informed, politically engaged citizen is a huge value for democracy because they become the node that – where then the information can spread from them through face-to-face -face conversations, through texts. There's this whole world that's going on that that doesn't that isn't linked to retweets and likes and things like that, where information is is spreading in, in ways where people actually trust it. I guess one counter would be we're already concerned about filter bubbles and Twitter and Facebook and, and these cycles where self-reinforcing cycles where you're only paying attention to a certain number of people and getting a certain perspective. Now you're asking folks to come read your newsletter where it's even more condensed version of that. Yeah, I, I would say I wouldn't recommend someone just read my newsletter. So, but I do think that to me, there's so little trust in media these days. People don't trust what they're reading, what they're seeing. I see a future where, you know, it might not be a couple of dozen, but you might select two or three people that you really trust to make sense of what's going on in the world, and and add that to your to your mix of who, media sources. Who do you read when you want to read what the world looks like t to a Trump voter? Uh, there's some there's some folks that I that I follow on Twitter and read. I like um, Guy Benson, who's uh, on Fox News, has a radio show. Um, I wouldn't say he's a Trump supporter, but he's definitely open to supporting Trump on various um, various issues. I think that. Yeah, the National Review, I think, is generally not a bad place and uh, to go. Pretty much a never Trump corner. Do you feel like it's important for you to intentionally put stuff into your feed? 
just using that word broadly, that doesn't reflect your politics, that's maybe in direct opposition to your politics, but allows you to like see, you could say, the other side, or at least how some portion of the the world views the thing you view. I mean, I'm a voracious reader of all of the right wing and farthest right wing. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're in the, you're in the swamp. Already. Yeah. So a lot of it will end up there. Now I'll. You know, put that into context. But if you want to know about, say, Diamond and Silk, who's this sort yeah. of pro-Trump duo who's very vocal, they get called into Congress as experts on on media uh, these days. But as, I as you know, they they mm-hmm. as you, as you mentioned today, they they lie. You don't say they lie. They they testified inaccurately under oath. Yes, um, which no one wants to point out. They did. Uh, about a number, whole number of things, but so you'll get you'll get all of that because that's I I read that probably more so than I'll read left wing commentators because I feel like I can kind of get that on my own. I think this is uh, this podcast is coming out before the uh, congressional hearings where Sheryl Sandberg is going, Jack Dorsey is going to be there mm-hmm. uh, to talk about political bias or lack thereof, and for the tech platforms. What do you th- what do you expect is going to come out of that? Well, I think Trump was really setting up what he wants to come out of that yesterday. I think they want to talk about shadow banning on Twitter of conservatives. I think you'll hear a lot of that from conservatives. I think you'll hear a lot about Trump's claims about Google censoring conservatives. Uh, I think you'll hear um, a lot about um, you know various political biases from all of the Republicans. I think there's a lot you – I hope people bring up about – YouTube's relationship with Russia Today and their status as a preferred partner of of YouTube. I think Sheryl Sandberg should be asked about what she knew about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and when she knew it. Um, I think that the whole point of these kind of fictional narratives of, of bias is to, is to crowd a lot of that out. And, and so far, the right is really rolling the left on this debate. I mean, there is no even comparison. They're pushing this idea that it's biased against conservatives, it's breaking through, and there's pretty much no pushback at all. Do you think that has resonance with general public? I mean, we we had the the Facebook hearings uh, earlier this year. We all paid attention to them. It's hard to imagine other than sort of Zuckerberg saying, we sell ads, Senator, Uh, that much came out of that. Um, And you can debate whether or not a regular person cares that much about privacy. Uh, do you think that the, the making this a political argument, a, a political bias argument instead will have more resonance? I think that it's very effective uh, for the right to fire up their base. Similar, just the same way that telling them that CNN is biased. Mm-hmm. And I think it it has a functional component too because when you see a headline that says, Trump's longtime attorney just said Trump yeah. committed two felonies. You've got a built-in wall around that, that that's all fake. And I think Trump knows the importance of social media. He put his essentially digital guy in charge of his 2020 campaign. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that they didn't run on anything resembling an anti-tech platform in 2016. Um, both they didn't do it on an economic argument, even though Steve Bannon presumably wanted to make it. Uh, he, he was never complaining about, you know, Facebook uh, giving WhatsApp $20 billion and having only 50 people. And, and, he, and he wasn't making the bias argument about the internet either. In fact, he talked about how, how useful Twitter was. Um, so does him turning to that now as an argument sh- tell you something? 
Yeah, I think it tells you that in the previous – in the last couple of years, a lot of what they did on Facebook on these platforms has been exposed. Whether or not it was in coordination with, with the Russians, we've seen it. And you know that their 2020 strategy is going to be based in large part not on buying TV ads because I think they're smart enough to know. You can look at the primaries in Florida that happened – it was Tuesday, it was yeah. Tuesday um, where – the, the Democrat who won was outspent, I think, 30 million to three or four million on television and still won. Uh, TV is is effectively uh, not not the vote driver that it was before. They're going to go all in on digital and they want to make sure that nothing is done that would constrain that. So I think that this is part of its part of its sort of a base riling up strategy, but part of it is protecting against what they see is, you know, they see that Alex Jones is now off a lot of these platforms. That's not a good, that's not good news for them. So you think there's a genuine concern for them? Shadow banning isn't just something you say to, to, to gull, to dupe a gullible person into thinking that they're being censored, but they actually are concerned they might actually lose access in the way that Milo did and the way that Alex Jones is losing access now. They're not th- going to ban th- the president of the United States from yeah. Twitter. I think, they, I think they're concerned that some of the targeting that they did and some of the targeting that their allies did and the way they did it with these shadow posts uh, suppress, you know, seeking to demotivate and suppress African-American voters, I think there's a real danger for them that those tactics, which was necessary for them to kind of hit the inside straight in 2016, might not be available to them. You are them. the first person I've heard suggest that. So either I'm reading the wrong thing or you're, you're really – you've got a very perceptive – smart. Well, I'm basically promoting your newsletter for you. If you want to get more insight like this, go get popular information from Judd. It's free for now. Five bucks – Sooner than later? Late September, early October, but free always. Popular.info. You can sign up. Sounds good. Thank you, Judd. Great. Thanks good a lot, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, one more time, uh, like we always say, please tell someone else about the show. Um, you can do what someone who runs a really uh, popular digital news outlet does and sent me an email saying, your podcast is consistently excellent. That's great, but it's better if you tell someone else. Just a thanks. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those ads to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. It is still free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits the show and my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Hi, it's uh, Maddie Glacius. I'm Dara Lind. We're the hosts of The Weeds from Vox.com. We're taking a deep dive into the policy decisions that shape the political landscape that you see from day to day. People always like to say you you don't want to get into the weeds. This is a podcast for people who do like to get into the weeds, who follow politics because they care about healthcare, about economics, about zoning, about inequality, about the actual underlying issues. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to get into the weeds because that's where all the policy happens. And that's the things that change people's lives. You can find more information about us at vox.com slash the weeds. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. And be sure to subscribe to the show to never, ever, under any circumstances, miss an episode. Yeah, if you miss even one, we'll be very sad. <laughs>